All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 25 of the KISS FAQ podcast. I am your host today, Lonnie Weissauer, STL KISS on the board. And I am joined this week by Julian, the admin, drinking a beer. Alex, the bag boy. Who's not. Pepsi, BYU. And joining us for the first time in quite a while is Nigel. And Nigel, what is your name on the board? I couldn't, I can't pronounce it. Um, Nosferatu, 1974. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Nosferatu was the uh, first German vampire movie from 1922. The bald vampire with the rat teeth. Um, actually, a lot of people think that uh, Gene's early, you know, early first couple tours, that Skull and Bones outfit that he had on, he was acting all like Lon Chaney, Nosferatu, all that kind of stuff. So I thought it'd be appropriate. I, I, I've had that name since I was on the board before you guys shut it down for a while. The reboot. <laughs> we reboot. <laughs> I had, you, I had you mean you mean when Julian had his hissy fit and deleted the bloody thing? <laughs> <laughs> and we all went back to zero. I remember that. Yep, the reset. Mm-hmm. But and Alex, why bag boy? Did you do work at a grocery store? Or what's, <laughs> you know, I, I I did, I did. I uh, I'm 25. I'll be 26 in July, so it's coming up 10 years. I when I joined the board it was 2006, so I was I was pushing carts at a Safeway in Maryland. And so I remember, like, Gene doing the whole thing, you can't have Giraffe Boy and Goat Boy, and I was like, I'll be the bag boy. You know, people <laughs> call me the coffee boy, so, you know, we'll put, like, a, nice. a brown paper bag over my right eye or something. Well, we all have stories. <laughs> Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing good. Good. Well, before we get started, I read, I read something today online that listening to heavy metal makes you a calmer person. I don't know if you guys saw that today or not. And I, I think that might be the case because I got home and I opened up my mail and inside my mail was, oh, my water bill, the bill to fix my roof, which was leaking with all the rain we had last week, which was, which was a delight. And my mortgage payment and my mortgage payment was double because it said I missed last month's mortgage payment. So I went upstairs, got online, saw that I made my payment, called the mortgage company, told them this is who I am. This is my account number. You know, this is what it's telling me. I owe you mortgage payments. Just oh, let me look it up. Well, the last payment we got from you was May the 1st. I'm like, well, it says here I made my payment on June the 1st. This is my confirmation number. This is my check number that I paid online. This is where it was sent to. She goes, huh. Well, let me look at that a little further. And let me get a phone number from you, and I'll call you back. It might not be today, but I'll call you back tomorrow for sure, and we'll get to the bottom of this because obviously here it's here somewhere. And I said, you know what? Thank you very much. I know it's not your fault. You get back to me, everything will be fine. And I hung up there and I thought, maybe all this heavy metal is making me a calmer person. I don't <laughs> Did they call you back? Not yet, so I'm still a little on that. Well, well, wait for it, because I've had situations where they were there was a company that was clearly in the wrong. They said, oh, yeah, you're right, no problem, we'll get that fixed right away. Nothing, 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 nothing. So... Until the money is back in your account or credited, don't just assume that it's been fixed because 
You can't trust anybody anymore. You're making me want to go get a beer right now, like Julian. Lonnie, I'll have a sip for you, but I will say, does metal make you a calmer person? Try driving and listening to Metallica or Motorhead, (laughs) and I guarantee you it won't make you calmer. It'll make you faster. I think it's the same uh, concept as the violent video games that people play. You know, uh, I feel there are some nutcases that can take it a little too far and think, I'm going to go grab a, a real gun and shoot up somebody. But for the most part, I think that's a, a, you know, an aggressive thing that you get out through the, you know, the that kind of stuff. And I feel Very like much. the heavy metal and that goes hand in hand with like the violent video games. It's a thing that we have to get out of ourselves and you can either do it creatively or, you know, in real life where you end up hurting somebody. It's going to come out in somehow, you know. As Paul Stanley would say, let's have a rock and roll party tonight. There you go. <laughs> Getting All a little right. rowdy. This is a rock concert, not a rumble. <laughs> well, before we get going, I want to thank everyone who listened to the show last week and for tolerating me hosting and if you didn't like me hosting well, you're out of luck because guess what? I'm doing a lot of talking again already. So you're kind of stuck with me again this week. But I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank everyone who leaves feedback either on the message board or on YouTube. I really enjoy reading all your guys' comments. Um, it means a lot to me, that, and I know it means a lot to all of us, and you guys comment, and you can see that everybody's listening to the show. Um, so please keep it up. If you haven't been commenting, leave us some feedback. I want, we all want to know what you guys think of the show, how you think we can improve it. We're a growing podcast, and any we are open to suggestions to make it a better show. So please leave us your feedback after you listen to the show. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, also, this is the last week that you can pledge your money to Ross Bradley's Magic Kiss Chronicles 1973 to 1983 book. Um, as of today, Alex is leaving us. I thought Alex fell asleep. <laughs> Sorry. He's pulling a mark. I had to get a fix for my roommate. Are you, are you, are you against the book here? Um, He's quit the show. <laughs> I'm going fishing. <laughs> wow. Oh. Hey, yo. All right, I'm sorry. As I'm talking about the Ross Bradley book. Uh, Timing is everything. Nigel, bada bing. <laughs> Uh, Alright, I won't talk anymore. Go ahead. Alright. I'm crying. Let me get my commercial out of the way, then we can start. As of today, $38,619 has been pledged towards the book. We got one week to go. So, you know, Kiss Army, this is really in your hands. If this is something you want to see happen, and this is a book that you're interested in doing, well, then you have to go out there and pledge. There's a long way to go, but it still can be done. Um, and it's important to remember if the goal is not met, you aren't out any money. This is a pledge towards the book happening, towards the goal of $100,000. And if you pledge 50 bucks, you don't have to buy your book later. You're already buying your book right then and there. So if you want the book to happen, get out there and do it. That's all That's all there is. Get out there and do it if you want this book to happen. This is your last week. You've been waiting and dragging your feet. Now is the time to do it. Yeah, no one in their right mind or no one is 
able to finance the amount of photo licensing that is required to the book to Ross's vision in advance. It's just an impossibility for a homegrown book. So, you know, support Ross. He's put up some sample chapters in the last week, um, some sample pages, um, some layouts, some really cool stuff for you to check out. You don't believe he's got anything? Go and read what he's got because he's got some really cool shit for you to see and to read. I love how the book, uh, he showed the table of contents and he has it all set up like the, the 70s cards. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's that just really a great nice a touch. great throw, but I love that. You can tell that comes from a fan's perspective because, you know, a book company would have never thought to use that as a as a template for a, a book, you know. No, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was really taken back when I saw the table of contents page the other day. I was like, wow, that's, if that's any indication of what this book has potential of being you know i think i think we're all in for a real treat if everybody gets out there and supports them so is he looking into uh getting gene and paul to like put their stamp of approval on it no. after it's done no okay did he go to them at, at one point and and didn't gene say he was interested in the concept yeah he he went to gene and and, and ross addressed that in the podcast um but he, he Ross made it very clear that he wanted to do it his way without That's any of the right. limitations and issues that would be um, he'd be beholden to Gene and anyone else if he gave over editorial con- control and he wouldn't be able to gotcha. do it his way. That's that's the key to all this and why it's a Kickstarter. It's Ross's vision. So okay, all right. Well, today's topic is a topic that was actually on the board last week, a member of the board named Ace Furry brought up a, just brought up a thread talking about the bandwagon jumps that Kiss has played throughout their career. And we all know the different bandwagon jumps they've done. There's quite a few of them. But we want to talk about which ones we think were maybe the most successful or our favorite bandwagon jumps that they've done. And, you know, we're also going to talk about the ones that, that weren't so successful and the ones that were kind of corny and the ones we didn't like at all. But that's what's so fun about being a Kiss fan is that there are a wide variety of, of styles and trends that they follow that you might not be a fan of the hair metal in the 80s, but maybe, you know, you're a fan, a fan of the grunge of the 90s or you're a fan of, of different styles and different looks. And there's just different varieties of Kiss fans out there and that's you know, a really cool thing about being a KISS fan is that we all like different things, but we all like the sum at the at the core of it all. It's so, all KISS to me. It's all KISS to Nigel. And Nigel, since it's your first time joining us in a while, I'm going to have you lead things off. And let's let's start on a positive note. So let's talk about the ones that we, that we liked or which ones you thought were the most successful bandwagon jumps. So, Nigel, uh, well, let's this... hear from you. This might be a little bit controversial, but uh, as far as successful bandwagon jumps, Destroyer, uh, Alice Cooper, they were trying to be Alice, they were going for the, obviously they got Bob Ezrin, but they were going for that Alice Cooper approach to an album, which is a real departure from the first three, I feel anyway. I mean, Great Expectations and Beth and all that stuff, it's clear to me you listen to alice cooper records from before that time and it's definitely got that same feel that same approach to it 
yeah, there is definitely a, a different vibe mm-hmm. as opposed to the first three albums. Yeah, I'm just and looking. I didn't even like it at first. Remember, because uh, when it first came out and it started to stall before Beth really hit, um, Paul was already making apologies for it in the in the press. He was already saying the next one's going to be back to what we do, not you know the theater theatrics sound that the Bob Ezrin uh, producing brought to it. But then obviously when Beth hit, he kind of sidestepped that a little bit and went back and said it was what they intended to do all along. So, oh, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can, def- you can definitely hear a change in the style. And you listen to, to Destroyer and you listen to like Billion Dollar Babies and things Alice was doing you know, before that. And you can really hear the similarities in, in production that, that, you know, and they were Alice fans. They, they went to an Alice show when they were growing as a band and, and saw him and thought, wow, you know, look, look, look at the theatrics he's doing on stage and really em- emulated him in a lot of ways. So. I'm not an Alice, went- Alice fan, so I'm looking at the album that Bob Ezrin had done right before going with Kiss, really, and that's Welcome to My Nightmare. You know, is there is there a similarity in styles between the two in that you've got your... You know, your big rockers, your soft, moody pieces, because isn't um, Welcome to My Nightmare like Alice's first solo album and a bit of a yeah, conceptual piece, which everything kind of ties together, which you then have in Destroyer. You know, there's a theme running through Destroyer. I think, you know, it, it's been discussed to death how there's so many little bits and pieces that tie together there, you know, from the beginning and the audio the oral introduction, the newscasting, kind of like the cinemagraphic, you know, music, really, you know, right through the ending, you know, the rock and roll demons. Um, well, they also explore the, the characters, you know, the first three albums really didn't explore Gene as the demon or Paul as the, the rocks. Well, I mean, they kind of do, but like the Alice Cooper approach, Bob Ezrin was like, let's get into these characters that you're, that you're portraying. Let's, write songs from their perspective, which was a good thing in Destroyer. By the time we get to Sonic Boom and Monster, it's a little played out. You know, you can't write God of Thunder over and over and over again. Um, but we'll get to that later. Unless you're ACDC. Oh, yeah. They've been quite, yeah. And if that's the case, you'll get on the Grammys. You'll open the Grammys no, to a... They're quite successful using the same formula over and over again. So, well, that's a, that's a really good that's a really good one. Alex, what about you? What is a, what's a, it's a bandwagon jumper? Can I say Kiss jumped on the bandwagon of Kiss's bandwagon with Alive 2 and the uh, the super edits and stuff? Like, you know, because you had Kiss Alive and clearly there was some studio magic done. And then by the time you got to Alive 2, there was some studio magic done. And then when you get to Alive 3, there was some studio magic done. And then we get the amazing uh, the Millennium Concert Division Alive 4 with some more studio magic down at the bandwagon, in my opinion. How, how far does it go between before it's not studio magic and a live recording, it's just a studio recording with a live oh, yeah, audience just placed over it? When does it, you know, cross that line? Because that's what I think, wasn't a live three almost that too for a lot of it? Because that doesn't sound, a live three doesn't sound anything like the, the actual show sounded to me. Yeah, because that 92 Detroit show sounds... Uh, that you watch on Kissology 3 sounds a whole lot better than what better. happened with Kissology 3. Oh, I mean, with Kiss Alive 3. Yeah, it's not a good representation of what the band, in my opinion, Alive 3 isn't a good representation of what the band sounded like in that era. 
I mean, especially you listen to those club shows and you listen to, there's quite a few shows out there from that revenge arena tour uh, of what the band sounded like and what we end up with on a live three is not. And a lot of good stuff missing. Yeah, like like Parasite and War Machine. War Machine are two standards that were in the set list. And War Machine was a big song in the in the set, you know, with the Statue of Liberty's face crumbling and all that. Yeah, I mean, shit, it's it's missing a second CD that album. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I told I didn't get to see that tour. I told that story here before. I'm still bitter about it, but yeah, if you want to if you want to listen to a live three, I say just put on the Kissology show and just turn off the TV and listen to the audio if you. Because I don't listen to a live, I don't really listen to a live two, uh, live portion or a live three that much. If I want to listen to that, I'll just put on the the videos. Because it doesn't, I don't think it's a real good representation of of yeah. it, especially when you have the stuff that was recorded at Soundcheck and all. It doesn't sound real. It sounds fabricated. Whereas a live sounds real, even though it's a fabricated in some portions. They just went a little too far. Yeah, I think. I, I, and I think that's a great example, Alex, of, of them jumping on the bandwagon. Well, we did some edits on a live. Well, maybe we can do some more edits on a live too, you know, and throw out tomorrow and tonight. You know, we, you know, we're, we all know when they never even played that, and they they just kind of got caught up with themselves that this worked before. We can make it work even better this time of, of jumping on, jumping with that, with that that line of thinking. So. Julian, what about what about? So, was that a good example to you, Alex, or a, or, a, um, or a bad example? I think it's. You know, I think I say it's 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 bad, uh, at least for me. Um, I mean, it, it's 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 cool because we got some, something from Kiss, and you know how us Kiss fans are. You know, they can repackage a compilation, and we'll go out there and buy it just because it might have one cool new photo in there. But at the same time, you know. I, you know, I'd rather ha- I'd rather kiss. You know, of course, not deal with the um, the Love Gun Deluxe, but just take that audio from like that Largo '77 show, and you know, put that on it. You know, had that been like in a live two show, or the even the uh, the audio from that Budokan, uh, the Budokan Hall show. You know, have that yeah. as an audio. I would have liked that. You know, I don't know. I like the nitty gritty. You know, I don't mind um, having a live CD and having them mess up the lyrics and stuff. That's, that's okay. Right, that's but what, we, we don't, things. but they don't want to put out product. That I mean, yeah. the Rock and Roll Party in Japan, the uh, Budokan show that you, you refer to, I mean, there's multiple mixed versions of that, and that is an insane... I listen to that. I hate Alive 2, by the way. I, I am not, I am not a too. fan of Alive 2 by any... The only thing I like about Alive 2 is the Miss Prinell P copy. That's all. I don't <laughs> listen to that freaking show. Um, I don't like it. You don't it. like Side 4? Side 4 is awesome. You know, at least Rocket Ride is. The only, the only track um, I keep from Alive 2, um, I said it before, is I Start Your Love. And, and I'm telling you guys, when you guys get off tonight, oh, I know you guys listen to this. Go put I, I Start Your Love. Go. <laughs> okay, Andrew. Um, go put uh, but, but go put I Start Your Love from the Love Gun. I swear there's this, like, beat that you hear on it and stuff. And it, at least it bothers me, so I have the Alive 2 version on my phone. Instead well, when of, you put... When you put uh, like you wanted the best on, that's a really good way to to really a b the production difference between Alive and Alive Two, because no Alive Two's got this real like thin audience sound, like it sounds like it's just been placed right over it, instead of you know if the first Alive is was immersing yourself in the crowd, this one just sounds like a real tinny 
sound that's been placed over the actual music. And it's really obvious, especially when you play something from a live and then a live two right afterwards. It's much more obvious. Yeah, a live you have the king, a live two is the Joker. I mean, it, it's really a, a piss poor facsimile of what had been done before without half the attention to detail and I think effort. I, I mean, obviously they were doing the, the fourth side. And I, I got to say, most of that shit's throwaway, you know, any way you want or whatever. I mean, that's just, yeah. come on. It is. But Larger it Than is. Life and Rocket Ride. Rocket Ride is the only thing worth a damn on that fourth side. Larger Than Life's the only kind of thing that, you know, kind of measures up anywhere near. But everything and else. Told Ace that wasn't good enough for Love Gun. Yeah, well, you know, they knew what they were going to be doing next. <laughs> I will say I'll give this with the life to the game. That gave what is magnificent. Beautiful pictures. No, packaging on it is incredible. Like so, th yeah. so many things kiss, the packaging is better than the content. <laughs> the cover uh, was, uh, somebody did a Photoshop of uh, the Alive 2, the two at the bottom moved into the middle of the image instead of being off to the side. And when you look at I me, mean, we're so used to the covers as they are, but when I looked at that, I said, you know what, that actually looks more aesthetically pleasing i'm surprised they didn't do it that way they put two photos on one side and then two photos on the other and they had the roman numeral two right in the middle i said you know what if i was working for casablanca in 77 i would have looked at that and said that looks better but it's interesting we're so used to those album covers the way they are uh you know they're so perfect in our eyes but when you really look at them like peter's makeup on dynasty is uneven and and the the girl on the Love Gun cover is like missing her body on the painting because he didn't have time to Ken Kelly didn't have time to finish the painting. Well, there Those were things we never even noticed. There were ten copies of the girl, so one of them not being perfect was. <laughs> <laughs> They're all the but same girl. Things that you don't notice until thirty years later, and you actually go, "Oh, you know, you're right." But for so many years, you're so astounded by these covers, you don't find any faults with them. Nowadays, when I mean, think of it this way: when Sonic Boom came out. Everybody found fault with every little thing about it. The monster cover came out. Everybody found fault with it. But back in the 70s and 80s, you were just so astounded to have another Kiss cover in your hand. You were taken up with it. Uh, right, but yeah. you have to remember, Kiss fans have become senile, the band so old. You know, every Kiss fan's like, get off my lawn. You know, not, they'll always be, you know, it's it's like politics. They'll always be 50% grumpy and 50% grumpy about the people who are being grumpy. You know, so but let's get back to bandwagons, all right, Lonnie? All right, let's get back to you, Julian. It's your turn. Oh, you okay. Well, I <laughs> I only really came up with you know one bandwagon, um, and it's really the band. Everything about the band is jumping on a bandwagon, and we go back to 1972, formation of the band. They jump on Slade's bandwagon. They jump on Alice Cooper's bandwagon. They jump on Magic Tramps bandwagon and steal satan's fire breathing um and the who they jumped on every single bandwagon that there was in 1973 and brown right yeah well you know not even that because directly in new york city in the glam scene were the magic tramps and satan the fire eating you know stage guy who the band taught how to sing so he was just a gimmick on stage and then of course there's arthur brown which goes back further uh, but directly in, in, in New York is the Tramps, um, the New York Dolls in terms of visuals, Slade, short, concise, catchy songs. So they that's a bandwagon. 
the sweet. You know, all the all the British bands that no one was listening to in frickin' America, Slade had, what, 13 number one or top two hits in 72, 73? America couldn't have given a damn, but, you know, for Anglophiles like Paul Stanley would have known about Naughty and the gang and all those catchy hits, which are, were dumb rock and roll. There was nothing smart about, you know, any of the stuff Slade did. In that in that time, so you know it's kind of like the blueprint that Kiss took. They hopped on that. We're going to do dumb, catchy songs. Visually, they hopped on Ziggy. You know, they hopped on Alice Cooper. You know, visually on the Dolls and again the Trams, Showmanship, Alice Cooper. Well, you know, they're basically that, four Alice we're Coopers. Not saying that dumb rock and roll is bad either, because what's Jerry Lee Lewis and oh, total, total, and, uh, uh, and Big Bopper. Big Bopper, Oops. Little Richard, you know, yeah. and any of it, you know, it, it doesn't, we're not, we don't want to be, yes, you know, it's got its place, so does King Crimson, you know, any of that, the more intellectual, progressive kind of music, it has its place. A good, dumb rock and roll song that makes you forget about your troubles, I'd say hop on that freaking bandwagon right away, because, you know, you forget about it, you know, you're just, you're putting on a show, you're playing short songs that don't go into 18 or 25 minutes that you lose track of where you are in the song. So you kind of start over in the middle and amble on somewhere else. That's a great bandwagon to be on, you know, so they combined all of these bandwagons and created kiss. Um, you know, it's like the USA, the melting pot of the world. Well, kiss is the melting pot of music in, in so many Senses that they hopped on it all in one at one time, just to found the band. So that, that's kind of the bandwagon that I think starts it all. That they when were never they, the band themselves aren't nothing but a hodgepodge of four guys from completely different perspectives and uh, backgrounds too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing original about them whatsoever, apart from what they actually did with the ingredients. So you can mm -hmm. give a basket full of ingredients to Gordon Ramsay. And you can give it to your wife, and they're both going to cook completely different things, and one may be better than the other. So, you know, to use a very poor Paul Stanley analogy, uh, you know, doesn't really matter. No, that's, that, that's a great example. That they started off just, and they jumped on what was popular at the time. And, you know, a lot of bands are guilty of that, too. I mean, take of all, of all the hair metal bands in the 80s, you know, they were jumping on that bandwagon, too. But you jump on what's popular at the time, and... That's what, you know, they mixed together and that's what they came up with. Yeah, how many bands out there are truly original? The Beatles, were they original? Hell no. Led Zeppelin, were they original? No, um, they had Delta Bluesman write all their songs for them, right? Um, exactly. Whether they credited them or not. The Rolling Stones, they knew what they wanted to be. It wasn't original. The Who, not original. Nickelback, not original. <laughs> so... You throw everything into a blender and you add your own little personality traits that you're probably not even now aware of that make it different and then if that's gold you know it takes off very rarely though will you get someone who comes out of left field with something completely new and original and usually that person who does is not the one who makes bank on it so yeah. and you know paul Stanley says in one of the videos we don't want to be a second class dolls we want to be a first class kiss and they they you know, they took what, what the dolls and bands like that were doing and kind of made it their own and 
what was popular at the time. Yeah, and look what happened to the dolls. What the hell did the dolls do? The dolls did nothing. They ended up wearing red latex, being managed by Malcolm McLaren. Arthur Kane quits and goes and plays with Blackie Lawless. Johansson does – what the hell does he do for most of the 70s? He tries to have a solo career. I mean – Buster Poindexter. Yeah, and later Buster, <laughs> and then they get back together. You know, what did that band do? Not a whole hell of a lot. Did they record one seminal album? Yeah, but what is it compared to, say, the W. Kiss album? I, I would say the Dolls album is pretty freaking mediocre compared to Kiss's debut. So Kiss actually had something to back it up with. They put in the work, you know, taking all those elements. So, yeah, they hopped on the right bandwagons. They discarded they the work the, ethic. Yeah, I mean, with, with work ethic. Kiss and the Dolls, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And a bit of luck because mm-hmm. Bill O'Coin, Neil Bogart, I mean, they had a label that was behind them and was willing to – you know, go into debt and, you know, bet the bank on them. Billacoin, without whom there would be no kiss, kept them on the road. So, so what do you think Billacoin saw when he saw Kiss that if he looked at the New York Dolls, head went, mm, no, nah, this isn't good. Kiss is what we're going to bank on. Because if at that time Kiss was just kind of a hodgepodge of everything that was already in the New York scene, what made them stand out to the point that Bill Quinn was willing to take a chance on them, but none of the other groups? They weren't popular yet, is my guess. Bill saw something that he could mold. He had Sean Delaney, his partner at the time. He saw something that he could work with. you know. So he saw an element there. The New York Dolls were already well and truly cemented in what they were doing. He sees something that's raw. He sees possibilities. I mean, I, I would say Bill's as much the artist as the members of Kiss. And, and he can and he can hear those changes if he uh, listen to the Daisy Show that circulates on <laughs> yeah. YouTube until now. I mean, go listen to Firehouse, you know, from that show, and then go listen to the Kiss Alive version. You can see the complete changes and stuff. They condensed it really well. Although I love the longer versions of that. The hearing that for the first time, you know, mm-hmm. a song you've heard all your life. There's like nothing to lose. There's there's an extra verse in there, and it blows your mind. It's like hearing a song you've heard your whole life, but a new verse inserted into it. You know, it's I love that stuff, but I can see why they dumped it because the songs needed to be. They didn't need to be Pink Floyd and go on for for ten minutes. Yeah, you didn't like need that fourth Floyd. verse in a hundred thousand years either. So I mean, Sean Sean and his uh, showmanship and the choreography. Sean, um, Bill and his TV. You know his his artistic background. You know, they were able to keep them pointed on the right bandwagon and create their own, kind of. Yeah. I think Bill saw something that he could that he could mold and put on television with the four characters. You know, it was, it was unique enough to him. It was, it was more unique than anything else that was going on at the time um, with the characters and, and with the songs and what they were doing. That it wasn't the dolls. It was something It was something like the dolls, but it was different at the same time. It was something he could, he could make his own. Well, my bandwagon jump, at least my first one, is going to be, it's not going to be much surprise to anyone listening, my favorite Kiss bandwagon jump is 1992's Revenge. <sighs> and Julian, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Lonnie, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Lonnie, this isn't the most underrated Kiss album episode. We did that already. Yeah, I know, and you guys burned me there, too. But... <laughs> My favorite 
favorite bandwagon jump is Kiss finally getting it right on what they were supposed to look like with the makeup off. And yeah, I'm going to get killed by Julian. I'm going to get killed by the guy who keeps... Yeah, you weren't, you weren't feeling that so like wrong. <laughs> Cover, jackass. <laughs> when did you get the Golden Girls on DVD? <laughs> but no, no, I'm going to get killed by, by you guys and the guy who keeps bringing up the thread on the board. It says, Revenge is the most overrated kiss on or whatever the, whatever the uh, thread's called. <laughs> but for me, for me anyway, it was my favorite bandwagon jump because I, you know, watching MTV in the 80s and seeing... Kiss looked kind of different at, at the time and kind of silly sometimes. That they rode off the tr- the bandwagon they jumped on was Metallica was running high with the success they had of the Black Album. We can talk about the Black Album. That's not for this show. But Metallica became mainstream, and they were seeing the success that a band like that could have just wearing black and looking kind of kind of tough and playing heavier songs. And I think you know Kiss went in that direction that. You know, maybe maybe this is a direction for us to go in. We're kind of fooling around here with what we've been doing in the 80s. And, you know, we got a, a new drummer. We can go with a heavier direction. And uh, <laughs> we're in the wrong era. <laughs> and and they, they moved away from, from poppy 80s, Bon Jovi chasing, hair band chasing, and, and went into a heavier darker image um like the success of like a metallica or megadeth was having at the time so that's and it didn't know did it bring a lot of album sales no did it mean huge tour attendance well no we've seen the attendance for the revenge tour but for me it was my favorite bandwagon jump because it's all kiss it, it made me proud to be a kiss fan in 1992 that you know look look at these guys they're cool looking they don't look so goofy anymore you know, it, you know I, I could I can hold that up next to my friend who liked Metallica or my friends who liked Megadeth. So you know what, this is this is just as cool. I don't care what you guys think. You know, you think that's really heavy and dark. Well, so is so is this. You know, maybe some of the lyrics aren't as heavy and dark, but their image finally got to me the way it would, that it should have been. So right, kiss. So so Gene, uh, I'm ready for another Gene lead track on a Kiss album. If they do another one, I doubt it's going to happen when. Paul's producing, but I would love another first track to be Jeans because it hasn't happened since uh, Revenge, right? Carnival, Carnival Souls. Oh, car- oh okay, okay, that's eight. right. Eight, but yeah. still, it's it's been w twenty years, oh, eighteen years. So Carnival, Carnival Souls. It drives me nuts with hey. with that as a kid. It's the first song, Carnival Souls. Yeah, pain <laughs> is what I am. Oh, okay. That's On not- the cruise. Uh, <laughs> Oh, okay. uh, someone asked if what songs they have never done live that they'd like to do, and Gene said he'd like to do Hate, and Eric goes something like, do you remember how to play it? And Gene's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool for them to do on that electric show Yeah, that they're doing on mass. I mean, Eric should really have asked Gene if he was in the studio when it was recorded, you know. <laughs> he was drawing up contracts. Yeah, Bruce playing bass. You know, Gene, did you do? Were you even there? But that's the thing. Since we're talking about bandwagon jumps, it's like the really frustrating thing about that is Kiss always jumped on the bandwagon about two years too late. You know, uh, you know. Imagine if Revenge had come out in 1990. Imagine if Creatures had come out in 1980. You know, it's like they finally figure out what they need to do, but it's a little too late to really make the impact that it could have if they 
done it a couple of years earlier. Yeah, but that's that's always been the weakness with Kiss that they're usually a day late and a dollar short. I mean, Revenge to me always, you know, smelled of them trying to be Guns and Roses, who were trying to be Zodiac Mind Warp with the biker rock look, you know, because Guns and Roses ditched the glam shit, you know, for Zodi's look. Um, you know, and then Kiss comes along and does it. All the glam bands were dropping it and going back into leather. Motley Crue did it with Feel Good. You know, they uh, so there was nothing original whatsoever about Kiss doing it. That the material on Revenge is so juvenilely weak that even as a twenty-something-year-old, I found it pathetic. Um, while it's musically exquisite, you know, it, it it's kind of a mixed bag of bandwagons to be on. It's good in the sense that. They at least look not as ridiculous as they had in the 80s, perhaps. Um, Gene doesn't look like someone's demented aunt. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's musically not a good bandwagon, as far as I'm concerned. There's a couple of really great tracks on there, but uh, I'm sorry. Unholy as shit. All right. Got that out of the way. That's a strong statement there. <laughs> I knew I was gonna. I knew I was gonna hear it, so I was just like, you know what? Just let him have his piece because I know he's gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Vinny wrote the the solo for uh, Unholy. Remember that uh, convention video don't, where don't, don't tell Bruce, Bruce, was, Bruce was talking about how pissed off he was because he took credit for writing the solo, saying we worked on that. We, as in Vinny and Bruce, and Bruce is like, he had nothing to do with that solo. It's very rare you see Bruce Kulik get mad about anything, but I, I enjoy that because it shows how, how much pride he took in that particular guitar solo and how pissed off he was that somebody else is trying to claim credit for it. Vinny's a douche. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's presumed dead now, I think, according to that. He's saying uh, a song missing or something I saw this week. Well, he, like, hasn't he been missing since for the last... Yeah, that, that, was, that, was a, that was a fake news site. I think you'd, uh, it would be more believable that he'd accidentally sealed himself in Tupperware with a ball <laughs> gag and expired. He jump on the, the Caitlyn Jenner bandwagon and come out as a woman. That would get him back into the media. <laughs> I thought he already did that. Careful. <laughs> We're going to get hate mail from Meredith. one's Carnival of Souls, if we're sticking to the 90s. Um, that's just flat out, if you thought Revenge was an uh, uh, attempt at jumping on something, Carnival of Souls, they're not even trying to hide it at that point. No, they're definitely going for the Alice in Chains. Um, and they, they've even made that comparison. You, you hear that all the time when you talk about Carnival of Souls. They're really going for an Alice in Chains type of, type of sound. And you know, and you can, depending on your taste of what, what you think about Carnival of Souls, you know, some people like it. And I think there's some good tracks on there. Alex seems to, seems to care for it. He's, <laughs> love it. I'm a little worried love about him right now. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there's some good tracks on there, but you can definitely see that they, that they were jumping on, on the bandwagon of, of the grunge movement. And, again, even if it would have came out in, it came out in the fall of 97, but even if it would have came out, say, in the spring of 96, they recorded in, you know, around Christmas time in 95, it still would have been a couple years late, just like the other ones we were talking about, you know, I, and you say that, I mean, because when I saw Kiss on their reunion tour, Alice in Change was opening for Kiss 
in St. Louis, and it was the second to last show Allison Chains ever played with the, with the old lineup. Yeah, I mean, Allison Chains was really kind of almost done by that point. Well, grunge was basically done. Even Pearl exactly. Jam, they had transitioned out of what might have been considered the grunge sound, and just the unpopular bands like the Melvins kept doing what might be considered grunge or alternative. So, I mean, but what is a good song on on Carnival Souls? I mean, I I I liked Master and Slave at the time. I, I thought Jungle was better when Deep Purple recorded it. Um, you know, there, there's. I like Paul's, you know, touching ballad to his son and, you know, Gene's stuff on there actually I'll say is better than on Revenge. You know, Childhood's End is great. I love, con I confess, but, you know, this isn't a Carnival of Souls episode and Toby Wright's done a fantastic podcast, you know, about the, the guts of that album, which I still have to listen to. So. I feel like that album's more real as far as where Gene and Paul were in 1995 than Revenge. Because Revenge, they were writing formula, you know, formula. Carnival of Souls, you know, Paul has that song for his son. Gene has the seduction of the innocent. You know, it, it may be conforming to a mold of its own, but I feel like that and stuff like on Psycho Circus, We Are One and all that, I feel like that's more Kiss in the 90s than what they would do in like Sonic Boom and Monster, which is let's rewrite the 70s songs, which to me comes off as really formula, uh, you know, fake no, at think, least I, think, on, I believe the songs on on carnival souls and psycho circus maybe i shouldn't but i believe those songs as being more real than the stuff they would do with the other lineup later on well i think there definitely was a formula to revenge with with ezrin at the helm producing and you know they, they had a certain direction they definitely wanted to go in and, and yeah i can see your point the carnival souls although it is a grunge they were going for the grunge type of sound. I think what they what they brought into the studio was much more honest um, for where they were in their lives at the time, as opposed to, you know, take it off when you're in your your forties. But you know, yeah. not that there's, you know, they're they but that's just the demographic they were they were going after in ninety two. They, they were going after the twelve year old, and I was twelve years old, and it. And it just, <laughs> It was and, perfect. And hey, it's 2015, so 65 is the new 40, right? So they can get away with singing it. <laughs> Why do you think it took so long for KISS to jump on bandwagons? Why did, Why were they always so late in everything that they did? Safety. Wait, safety. Wait. You can see the success and they're going to jump on Yeah, they, they, they didn't want to jump on a bandwagon that didn't last. You know, they wanted... When did they start... When did they become... The people that led the parade to the people that followed the parade dynasty 76 i think and and that would have been my next pick uh is rock and roll over you know obviously it's my favorite album but i look at what aerosmith was doing and getting big with 76 um they had done toys in the attics attic they had done rocks which are just basic rock and roll albums through and through ted nugent free for all and I can't remember a 76 album, but, you know, the big rock bands that were emerging in the mid seventies, the stadium rock, were just doing solid rock albums. Montrose again, you know, there's albums, obviously 73, just doing a through and through rock album is kind of a bandwagon because they're copying the stuff and sticks as albums, you know, in that period, nothing particularly challenging. They're all very, Verse, chorus, verse, 
they all have the the one softer track i mean aerosmith you see me crying you know shit like that you know that they're, they're all very formulaic and that you've got one guy token vocal by someone else on an album so right from the get-go how is, how is rock and roll over that different from the first kiss album because i mean isn't that kind of what they started off with doing you know, I mean, they kind of took a departure on on Destroyer. Then they went back to kind of the, the sound that made them who they were. Um, and then Love Gun, you could even argue, is more poppy, which would head towards the solo albums and then head towards Dynasty. So it's all a conveyor belt. But I always saw Rock and Roll Over as, as uh, channeling back to the first three records. Yeah, I, I do as well. But when you throw in Hard Luck Woman... Your ballad, oh, yeah, that changes well, that the was, dynamic that, overall. Too. Yeah, you know, they, uh, you know, like I can, they definitely had the, uh, the form. There definitely was a formula for rock and roll over with, uh, with throwing in the, the ballad, but also getting back, getting back to, I can see both your points, getting back to more basics, but at the same time, seeing the success of what other bands are having by '76 of. Of, you know, this is the direction we need to go. We don't need to, to stick with the formula of Destroyer. This is we need to see. We see what other bands like Aerosmith. Yeah, we we don't need to experiment. Let Rush do that. Exactly. But also, didn't they start working on Rock and Roll Over before Destroyer became a hit? They kind of saw they they saw Destroyer starting to plummet, and they they said we got to get back into the studio and do something like we're used to doing. And then that's when Beth kind of hit, and then they changed their direction. But they, you know, Rock and Roll Over was kind of an immediate knee-jerk reaction to the initial uh, response to Destroyer, which a lot of the fans didn't like. Yeah, the the, the immediate knee-jerk was before it was even released. You know, them wanting to call in Jack Douglas to remix it. You know, they they were they were frightened to death of what they they had created. So, I mean, Beth Beth comes out in September. They're not in the studio yet. You know they're scheduled on. They're out on tour, so they don't have a, a schedule into the studio. They know they're going in to do an album, and if you look at the material, that's seventy five, seventy six material from Gene. That's older stuff from Peter, and God knows Paul's. You know, I want you. You know, it, it's probably all pretty recent for him because, as he says, he hates recycling stuff, and he, you know, just really writes for the occasion until he's got what he likes. So I don't, I don't think that's really the case. That that's a knee jerk. Um, because they were so scheduled into their two albums a year cycle that it was so far in advance scheduled that, yeah, they may have said we're going to make this one ballsy or we're not having Ezra back, we want Kramer. Um, but that's as much of a knee jerk as I think they get out of that. Um, and I'm just trying to look up here, you know, when Rocks came out. Um, and of course, my internet's acting up. So that came out in May, May 76. So. Yeah, that's enough time for for them to kind of hop on that bad that bandwagon, you know, that I'm trying to suggest exists in that they're seeing. I've even heard that. I've even read that um, they said that hotter than hell was them trying to be Black Sabbath. The production was them trying to copy that formula, and I don't know how you know. I can hear it, but I don't know if that's more or less just the production style or the. Uh, I don't think the songs were Black Sabbath-y type songs. Maybe Parasite. I guess the production but... 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it, it sounds gloomy and doomy, and uh, yeah, it sounds like you know, sounds like Black Sabbath. You know, that's pretty unkind to uh, Sabbath production. You know, one bandwagon jump that Kiss didn't do, which I was surprised they didn't do, was the whole Guitar Hero bandwagon jump. Aerosmith had the had their own Guitar Hero. The Beatles had their own. I think Beatles had Rock Band or something. You know, I was really surprised by Kiss that they did not, especially being the bandwagon jumpers that they are, they did not hop on that at its peak in popularity. Because you really could, and if they had done it right, they really could have done it actually really cool with, you know, you start off with songs off the first album and you're playing in clubs and you're playing in the old outfits and the bigger you get, the bigger stadiums, the bigger venues you're playing and, you know, you can go through the progression with the outfits, you know, from the Destroyer tour to the Love Gun tour to the Dynasty tour and even into the 80s. And it really could have done that really cool and really made it something very unique, especially being Kiss in a video game. Um, I was really shocked. I was really surprised at that. And I never even heard people were suggesting it at the time that, oh, Kiss, Kiss has got to be the next one to do it. Kiss has got to be the next one to do it. And they never did. And. I'm really surprised by that. Was but as much a bandwagon jumpers as they are, that they never did that, and and maybe they tried to do that. I mean, and you know, there's probably I, a lot. There's probably a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on that, you know, you know, Kiss and their licensing fees maybe wanted more money than the video game make than you know, video games were willing to give them. But I, same reason me, why they never been on The Simpsons. Gene tried to negotiate a deal and. They wanted he wanted way more than the Simpsons people wanted, to, and he wanted to cut. They wanted to do Simpsons, uh, Kiss merchandise, kind of like the Family Guy family thing they're doing now. And mm-hmm. Gene wanted so much of the cut that the Simpsons said, "No, no, no we're not going to do not that because we can't make money on that." So I would imagine the Guitar Hero thing was a similar situation. Yeah, I would think so because that that really just kind of to me, the Guitar Hero Kiss. You know, and you could have, have you know, we've seen like the act, you know, they, and I think it might have been somewhat in the worst because there is like an axe based like guitar hero type controller even too. But I mean, you could have done that with the axe, with, with a PS10, with an Ace Freely Les Paul. It really could have been, you know, very, very unique. And, you know. Can you imagine going to Best Buy, like the Best Buy version includes, you can unlock Mark St. John. <laughs> you, could, you buy it at Walmart, you can unlock, you know, Anton Fig. You know, or, uh, yeah, all these really weird <laughs> bandit makeup on Paul. There you go, yeah. Mm-hmm. See, that would have been badass. And to me, that was, to me, I, I just couldn't believe that that never happened. And You never know, it might be coming out next year. Yeah, yeah they're kind of late to the party on Bad Wax, so maybe it's still more. <laughs> or, or, or what about <laughs> Rockstar? I mean... <laughs> You know, every every band, rock star in excess or whatever it was, you know, all those live music things, you know, which were like talent shows, they never did any of those, really. Well, Kiss uh, 2.0. Yeah, but, yeah, but I mean, yeah. even, even when a, half of these shows are now ending, or the, and the reality shows of, of that era are all, you know, coming to an end because the, atten- the, the, the public's attention have gone, who would care about Kiss 2.0 on TV now? It's just everything's past its sell-by date. The shows are past its sell-by date. The band may well be in the public eye, in the U.S. at least, you know, past its sell-by date. That you know, they may now have uh, finally negotiated it, but uh, there's Although, no uh, audience. Didn't, didn't Family Jewels run for longer and was considered more successful than the Osbournes? 
as as far as the long haul is concerned, I think the I Family Jewel show lasted yeah. a lot longer. But that's a bandwagon so, jump, though, too, obviously. As soon as yeah. Gene saw Ozzy and his family on TV, you know Gene wanted him. He, he couldn't allow that to happen, that Ozzy would be the only one to do that. How to make a multi-year multi show out of people who are essentially boring. I mean, when, <laughs> when, you, when you compare them to the Osbournes, I'm sorry, dysfunctional is more interesting than, you know, Ozzy falling over. You know, it's just, it's like throwing a football in someone's nuts. It's like more interesting than watching Gene and his family so decaffeinated. But us yeah. KISS fans, we'll, you know, we could sit, we could watch Gene sitting at a coffee table and signing a thousand uh, posters. No. There are people among us that could sit and watch him just sit there and do nothing for an hour or him conduct conducting business quietly at his office you know there's people that would watch that and uh i feel family jewels has its has its ups and its downs there are definitely some episodes you know it got more scripted as it went on um as far as all that marriage and all that i mean it was scripted from the beginning but it even seemed fake towards the end it seemed like it was just it's straight what, up you, you didn't find bull seam in a plausible plot line <laughs> You know, I gotta say the funny these kind of things happen. I gotta tell you the funniest thing that happens here, at least in the Facebook, people find that I like Kiss and stuff, and they go, "Oh, I, I don't like Kiss, but I really like that Family Jewel show. Did you watch it?" And I was always, I was like, "I like Kiss, but I didn't watch the show." So I will tell you, I I think Family Jewels was the one of the big things that brought Kiss back because there was that lull there uh, from what two thousand two, two thousand one to 2005, 2006, where you didn't know what was going on with the band. And Sonic Boom and the re-records, they did a, a big tour in 08. Um, you know, so many people, I'm sure, went to those shows because of Family Jewels. And I think that brought the Kiss name back, whether Paul Stanley wants to admit it or not, that really did help bring their stature back. Well, I agree with that. That, you know, as much as I don't, much as I don't care for the show... It did a lot for the band and bringing them back into a a public eye that people were aware of them, that they were still around and and that they still existed. And when Kiss went on tour and did their first fall, their first proper American tour since um, Rock the Nation in the fall of 2009, you know, it was very successful. And people had their doubts about it, about how successful the tour would be because they hadn't toured America in quite some time, and when they did tour America the last time, it was with Tommy and Eric for the first time, and people were kind of skeptical about that still, and, you know, I, I think the attendance on that fall of 09 tour really surprised a lot of people, and I, and much as I don't care for the show, um, I think Family Jewels played a large role in the success of bringing Kiss back into the public eye, so. Agreed. How many people, how many people said, my grandmother watches Family Jewels? You know, he, he hit all markets. He hit the kids, you know, the Kiss fans, obviously. But when, you know, your grandma's watching Family Jewels, you know they did something right. Because, how, you know, how would she know about Kiss outside of that? Well, it, hits, it hits all these, like, yuppies up here at BYU-Idaho that are like, you know, oh, my goodness, they're evil. And they watch this show. So you got all the people that you want to think be interested in Kiss checking out Jewels. So... Definitely. Yeah. I got another bandwagon. Are you Go ready? Ahead. All right. I'm ready. All right. 
Now, this one, I don't know how much to stretch, but I feel like, and I'm glad they did it. I think everybody's happy they did it. Um, but the reunion tour, it was kind of like, I feel like it was like a little bit of a handful of bands at the time kind of getting back together in the 90s, uh, you know, starting, starting with the late 80s, um, some of those bands that broke up in the 70s, and, and then going into the 90s of like, oh, it's been 10 plus years, let's get back together and, and go out there and do a reunion tour. And, uh, and of course, obviously, that was a great bandwagon, I, you know, for everybody who got to see the reunion tour and stuff, but I definitely feel they did jump on that bandwagon push too. So they were they were way too late because if if you remember when did the band when did these bands getting back together the ones that were big in the seventies nineteen eighty four Aerosmith well I see Sticks uh, these Sticks got back together in ninety five and they did a uh, Return to the Paradise okay um, ba- bands that actually count uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Kiss never actually broke up they kept going it was Aerosmith no. actually called it quits for a while right no. They kept going. They kept going. They, they did keep going. Playing. Yeah, I mean, they brought in uh, who came in first, Crespo or uh, what the hell's his name? I'm not good on my hands. Or the other guy. Um, you know, so <laughs> so. Rock in a hard place. Yeah, eight, they eight, like yeah, eighty two. They put like, Rock in a hard place out. Yeah. Um, you know, 83, 80, 84, Obviously, uh, Black and Blue tours with them. So you know, they get back together with Joe. He put out his three solo albums. Uh, Rick DeFay is the other guitarist. Um, so, you know, they get back together and they don't immediately, they, they, they feel it through. You know, they do the little Back in the Saddle tour in 84 and that's when um, Black and Blue opens for them. And then, of course, they do Done With Mirrors. So low-key album that, you know, some people think mediocre. I say it's the last real Aerosmith album and everything after that sucked balls. Um, and... You know, that's that's really the start. That's your big 70s act getting back together. And that's the only one that's really comparable with KISS. Styx is many levels above KISS commercially in terms of the AOR, um, you know, the output that they had and the popularity because they were pretty frickin' mega uh, compared to KISS's sales. Simple as that. So they're on a, a different kind of plane of existence. So in 96, who do we have getting back together? Sex Pistols. You know, you had, no, but you know what else you had to get back together? Who I saw in 96? Oh. was Black Sabbath. I saw Black Sabbath. Oh, uh, yeah. All four original members in 96 also. That's true. So that Alex is, so I'll give you that, Alex. You had, Didn't the Eagles and, have and, a really big resurgence, too? The Eagles at that point? And the Eagles is one, Eagles. too. Yeah. I, actually, I actually wrote a paper about this in college. About, <laughs> about Kiss in college. <laughs> and this was my opening statement was about bands. We've all done together. it, yeah. Uh, come on, <laughs> and, uh, and but there was also the, a resurgence of the '70s culture, yeah, in the and, '90s too. You know, you had the Eagles getting back together. You had did, 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 Jimmy Page and Plant toured together. Page and Plant toured together. You had quite a few bands like that doing that um, in that mid '90s frame. That you know, maybe maybe there is something here that, that we can still cash in on. And um, to Alex's point, I think. Um, that he, that he brings up a good point about about getting back, the When did the Eagles get back together? Because that's probably the one that made uh, Gene's eyeballs go ka-ching. Yeah, there's... You know, you get accused of surfing the internet on the show, you can look that Yeah, up. if hell... If hell if, I know it was the Hell Freeze... Wasn't it the Hell Freezes Over tour or something like that? So... Uh, hell Freezes Over... Yeah, Hell Freezes 90, Over tour. Exactly 94. Right. 94. Uh, yep. 
Well, that reunion, I mean, they had nothing else. I mean, it was perfect timing. Because Gene and Paul, I mean, Carnival of Souls, that was kind of their last-ditch effort to stay modern. And imagine if that had come out and there was no reunion tour. That would have probably be the end of Kiss, because I can't imagine them touring for that record. Well, and, and uh, let's be honest, too. The summer of 95, they're playing in, in hotel ballrooms at the time. Yeah. They were not even... They're not playing in arenas or anything like that. I mean, they were, the reunion tour was, you know, what they had left. It was the ace card they were holding on to, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. You know, that this is, it's, it's this or bust at this point because we know that, you know, we're, we're, we got, we don't have much left in the tank. What would you say since Hot in the Shade? That was kind of the first inklings they had of, of doing a, a reunion show because they tried to get Ace to do a makeup show with Eric Carr, if I recall, and Ace didn't have really any interest in it at that time that's when they went to that uh what was it stone pony maybe i'm thinking of something else there's pictures of fraley's comet playing and gene and paul come up on stage and they played deuce yeah that's that's 88 that's the limelight i think limelight yeah they were kind of dropping hints there and then they did the kiss my ass which was classic kiss and and they put the makeup back on and the letter the the note little little note they and peter that you could tell it the wheels were definitely spinning in their minds by that point and I never saw that because the the Kiss My Ass CD I got had a black insert tray. And I remember I had to take out the black insert tray underneath, and there was the the letter to uh, to Peter and Ace. But I got the CDUs, so maybe they put a different uh, case on it. But I remember thinking, I don't, mine doesn't have that. And I opened it up, and I'm like, well, it's, it's got nothing here. And I took the thing out, and there it was underneath. So it's a cool thing. Alright, any other bandwagon jumps, guys, you guys want to talk about? Bon Jovi. Uh, the, the Elder. The Elder's definitely their answer yep. to, to, uh, to Pink Floyd and other no, acts it, like that. No, it isn't. It's not their answer to anything. That's oh, like fine. that. That's like polluting Pink Floyd is quality and The Elder isn't. <laughs> what, um, would, would you guys say that Kiss My Ass was a um, was a bandwagon thing? With oh, yeah. Did Jimmy like Alpha the convention tour was a bandwagon because they saw the, what the fans were doing. And they said, well, we can do that. And then they sent, what, cease and desist letters to all the other fan conventions. Okay, but are we confusing bandwagon jumping with money grabbing? <laughs> it's they go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they jump bandwagon. on bandwagons because they want to make that money. We talk about the bandwagon jumps we enjoy, but I got a bandwagon jump that was not one of my favorites and was not a very successful bandwagon. Does it include a blue thong? It does not include a blue thong, and sorry to disappoint you. Thank God. (laughs) We can discuss that later. But my bandwagon jump that I knew it was coming, and I hoped that the rumor was false, but it, it was 20 years old, and I was pessimistic at the time of, when I heard that Kiss was going to record a Diane Warren song and release it on <sighs> the Detroit Rock City album, I I hope that the rumor was false. No, don't tell me they're jumping on the Aerosmith bandwagon of recording a power ballad because they saw the success that Aerosmith had in 98 with the song they recorded for the Armageddon soundtrack, and they thought they could duplicate that. Julian's looking up something. And... <laughs> They, I, I hoped it was, I hoped it was false, and, it, and we all know it wasn't. And 
I had a bad attitude about it the first time I heard before I even listened to it, I had a bad attitude about it. And then I listened to it and I had an even worse attitude about it. And it it's not even it's not even as good as the Aerosmith song either. And I'm not saying I'm a fan of the Aerosmith song, but it's it's not even in the same league as that Aerosmith song. And it for for the Detroit Rock City soundtrack, it's doesn't fit on it yeah we're gonna record this diane warren song and then and then you know what we're gonna play it we're gonna play it in the credits because that because that's where you'll want your new song at is in the credits that's where it's the most memorable so didn't paul have to fight for that too i remember reading it oh, in really his book. That song. there you go <laughs> thank you Julie. <laughs> oh god well you know that's as much a kiss song as you know that's what paul stanley there's nobody oh, else from Kiss on that song. Nothing can keep me from puking on you. <laughs> I fucking despise that song. Can I make that any clearer? And then they throw it on Kiss 40 last year. I'm like, really? We're throwing this on Kiss 40? You're was, trying to celebrate 40 years of the band, and you throw me this pile of shit on there? I was surprised Starship covered it. I didn't even know how they knew about it. Who covered it? You know Starship. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, you know, like, without this city. Yeah, they covered it like a year or two ago. Oh my, did they even know, or was it another hide your heart situation? It's probably a hide your heart situation. This what about one. Detroit Rock City, the movie? That's a bandwagon jump, because they're trying to do uh, Days and Confused, pretty much. A day in the life type of, of movie. Or of I Want to Hold Your Hand, which the Beatles movie just with Kiss inserted into it. There, except for uh, Days and Confused is kind of a cult classic now, and Detroit Rock shit, shitty is still shitty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it can't stand that movie. Do not it's like not it. It's not so bad if you, like I said, they don't. It didn't know. It didn't know what its audience was because Kiss fans didn't know. Didn't know what its script Kiss. or plot was. I can tell you what the audience was. I walked in the theater the night it came out, and there were like five people in there. That's what the audience was. It, it was yeah. depressing when you when you think back to you know all the hype that surrounded. You know, it was like 1978 all over again. Yes, it was like 1978 all over again in terms of overexposure, poor business decisions, shitty plots, and you know, made-for-TV movies that should never have been in the cinema. I mean. I just don't see how Kiss could ever do a movie that would be worthwhile. And uh, it's not going to be art. We know that. I don't think anyone would expect it to be. Um, you know, something that you go to come. The only to thing see. they could do uh, would be a, a documentary movie with actors playing them. That, that could have potential to be good if it was put together well. Yeah, I, I just cringe at that because the one that pops into my head is that god-awful Def Leppard one that they did with uh, actors. Uh, yeah, which was just, you know... I just think of that movie with Mark Wahlberg in a way. What, uh, Rockstar? Yeah, Rockstar. like a crappy film like that. <laughs> that at least had Jennifer Aniston in it. That is, yeah, was... Is it lick it up on the soundtrack of that? Yeah, album? yeah. And, that, and the angry English lady. So <laughs> can't go wrong with that. Um, well, since we're we're in 1999, why don't we just jump forward to 2003? Kiss Symphony, Alive Four. That's a great one. And uh, according to Kiss, never before had a rock band and a symphony come together to do a show. If you if you watch their interviews. They sell you this idea as if you've never heard of it before. 
as if you, Metallica, you, have, you would have no album. clue. Yeah, how the, to uh, the Metallica album had only been out about four years at that point. <laughs> yes, and the Metallica album at least been done with uh, was that Michael Kamen? Who uh, I think it might have been. I mean, I'll, we'll get, I'll give Kiss credit because I, I got an email a while back that I guess Chicago just did a, a, a symphony with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So they're behind by like 12 years on that bandwagon. So <laughs> I'll give Chris, Kiss a little credit. There, right, but, but, yeah. but they're Chicago, which true. kind of lends itself a bit more to a symphonic production. And when we get back to Kiss being, you know, Metallica had obviously done it. Deep Purple had done it. I don't know who Me, else. Meatloaf did it with the Scorpion Symphony too. Yeah, was, yeah, and shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What about Psycho? What do you think of that Scorpion? <laughs> what the? Can you think of any anything they were jumping onto for Psycho Circus? I mean, ICP came out and, and claimed that they stole the whole thing from from them, but um. You know. Yeah, but ICP where, stole it from Kiss. Where did Kiss jump the bandwagon with Psycho Circus? Trying to write, rewrite the, the album cover. Trying to re- uh, write uh, another space song for Ace, like Rocket Ride. Uh, trying to write the the symphonic anthemic song, like yeah, 20,000 years. Those are, I don't really consider those bandwagons. I consider those elements, stylistic and creative elements that you kind of want to weigh on. So I don't see any major bandwagons on there, except maybe the uh, the tour, and that's taking a circus out with your 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 concert tour. You know, obviously it never got past Dodger Stadium, but you know, and, and tying it into comics, that's kind of the bandwagon. Real quick, Julian, you were at that Dodger show, weren't you? Yes, I was. How was that circus effect? Was it cool, or were you just like, "What the crap's going on"? It was. Turn my light on real quick. Go ahead. It was idiotic, as far as I was concerned. But I was in such shitty seats at Dodger Stadium that I could barely see. All I really recall of that were some of the acrobats spinning around. I'm like, "That's it." And I think there was a ball of death and a motorcycle in it. That's all I recall. Um, I mean, I was so far back. Um, I mean, I was I was in hell. I was in Dodger Stadium, but um, <laughs> not not a whole lot of memories. The, the, the cover of Psycho Circus um, was I don't know if you guys have this or saw this or not, but um, Ozzy put it in so album. much better. Well, yeah, well that's that's a topic for another show too about yeah. bad album covers. But um, Ozzy put out an album about '97 for like Ozfest. It had a, a vernacular cover like that where you kind of moved it one way and you could see the crowd, and you moved it another way, you, you couldn't see the crowd. And Ozzy had his arms up in one side and down in another. And then two years later, Kiss came out with an album with the same type of, with the same concept in that too, which was that's the, the first thing I thought of when I when I saw that Psycho Service was going to be like that was this Ozfest like promotional album that came out a year and a half before that, which is. Kind, yeah. of, kind of the same thing. Yeah, I don't know if it, you guys saw that or not. Everyone on their dog did. I mean, Ace did that with his uh, Greatest Hits Live album. One version came with. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think he did it again, didn't he? With, uh, wasn't there? Uh, I don't know. Can't remember. Have another sip of beer. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were talking earlier about Kiss jumping on the Kiss bandwagon. Uh, the first thing that pops into my head when I hear that is Sonic Boom. Because they're... They're playing Kiss. Sonic Boom, and to a lesser extent, Monster, but Sonic Boom is 
them trying to jump on the bandwagon of rock and roll over. Right, you know, I, I mean, right down to the artist, I agree. Song. They gotta have a, um, you know, a Catman song. And even though, as much as I like those songs, I can't imagine Tommy sitting in the studio recording these songs, you know, about the spaceman. You know, it, it gets tired even when Ace does it. it you know, Space Invader. It was like, all right, you know, we get it. You're from space. You know, it would be so cool to have Tommy do a ballad or, or, or you know, something different, something different. But just, and even the cover uh, of Sonic Boom is just copying rock and roll over and not as well, in my opinion. Well, I think, I think that's a very valid point because, with Sonic Boom because even, even a lot of interviews and press releases, people were saying, well, this is, they're like, this is the album that should have came out in 1978. Like, just, dis- just disregarding everything that came, came out between 78 and 2009. Kind of like, like a horror movie that like reboots or something or picks up like after the third one and forgetting about what happened in between or something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's a really excellent point about in the bandwagon jumping up. But we need to have the spaceman sing a certain song on not only a song, boom, but on Monster 2. We got to have him sing a certain song, and the Catman's got to sing a, you know, kind of a, kind of out a, in the streets, gr- a gritty on the streets type of rocking tune. Yeah. Also, you know, we we'll, won't we'll, we'll make Eric sing a ballad, but he but he has to sing a song like, like like sing it like Peter would sing it type of type of song. Even. Yeah. Um. There, I mean, you listen to both Eric songs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like. I like both Eric's songs off Sonic Boom and Monster, but there's definitely, Julian does not, and there's <laughs> there's definitely a formula to it at the same time that we have to we have to do things a certain way off, you know, because it has to follow this this formula and this progression off of, you know, like you said, Kiss jumping on their own bandwagon. I'd rather Eric did a ballad. Really? Yeah. Actually, I'd rather Eric did what Eric wanted. I don't know. If Eric should just sing Beth again because then you'd have all three drummers in their own versions of the song. What? So we're still waiting on that one. No. I hope not. No. <laughs> now, what about the um, the thing that they did last year in Japan? <laughs> that was obviously to sell tickets to their shows because after they left Japan, you never heard about that song again. They never talked about it again. But for that month and a half or whatever it was, Thank that you. was the only thing that Kiss wanted you to know about was they were performing and they did a new song with this with this girl group that I can't even remember the name of now. Momo Clover Z. Momo Clover. But yet, but, they they really you know, elegant. but yet we are about to get Scooby Dude and no one even knows the freaking song that they perform on that. That scares a shit. Yeah. So here we are about we are about to get I mean, we're less than a month out from the release of that straight to DVD Scooby Doo crap. Um, and and no one seems to have any information on that. Whereas the the stuff with the Japanese girls, obviously it was for the market and they are massive out there and they have so many parallels with the band. You you just couldn't get away from that song. And, you know, I'm, I'm really surprised Kiss didn't keep that song in the set list. <laughs> well, I think the, the whole lip-syncing thing, I think, scared them. Because I it really came back to bite them in the butt. Because of all the things that Gene said, what, a year or two before? And um, What lip-syncing? Every, when Paul did the song uh, in the Japan. The first night they did it, they had that backing track. The first night, yeah. <laughs> 
but <laughs> Julian's being evil. <laughs> have another, have another beer. <laughs> the, the sad thing was is that when they did it on that TV show, he did it live, but it was just awful. So it's like you got to pick your poison on that one. Yeah, never um, never write or record songs that you can't sing. I mean, that's that's kind of a lesson. Don't hop on the bandwagon if you can't kind of stay on the wagon. And the, obviously the most obvious bandwagon jump that we surprised we haven't got to is I Was Made For Loving You. I mean, that in Dynasty in and of I, itself. I don't think that's a bandwagon. You know, I, I kind of accept Paul's explanation of that song. Of I went to the disco and I kind of figured out every song was like this number of beats. I said I can write that song, you know. Mm-hmm. I I kind of see that as a personal challenge rather than trying to be disco. Uh, that, that's him saying, "Can I do this? I, I want to write in this style, you know, you know do something different." So I, I take his explanation. I think it's probably it, it seems to me plausible, honest. Uh, you know, it's not MythBusters here, so yeah, plausible. What about Dynasty and Unmasked? Like the the look and the sound of those so albums, yeah. I think that was, I, that was I think big for some of the era, the clothing. You know, I th- I think that they were getting caught up with themselves more than anything, and as far as the look and the comic book hero type of image and the, the, the audience that they the were solo albums and the audience that they were appealing to at the time, um, with the younger audience coming to see the shows in '79. Um, that they were, they were feeding into the younger audience. They were, they were seeing, and um, they, you know, that was, that was what, that's who was coming to see him, and that's who, that's who they were, they were catering to. One I got that um, was really popular in the mid '90s. This was back when MTV actually played, played music, and that was when MTV had MTV Unplugged on, and it was on all the time. Um, you know, we've seen. Obviously, the Nirvana one and um, Alice in Chains, and there's quite a few of them. And Kiss got invited to do, to do theirs, and obviously we know what happened on the show. But aside from Ace and Peter coming out on at the end, I mean, we all can agree that Kiss Unplugged may be probably, it's probably my second favorite live recording of the band outside of, of a live one. Yep. The band, band just sounds as tight and as crisp and as polished as ever and set list on that obviously is just incredible they weren't and afraid to take chances on unplugged they absolutely you know, not if they Coming if out. they were to do that now they would do all the standard songs you'd expect from the very beginning they didn't take okay. any I, I disagree i don't think they took any chances whatsoever it's at the end of the convention tour they had road tested every single one of those songs on it so they knew what worked and it was absolutely outstanding. So while I don't think it was a risk, uh, I disagree with you on that. I think their choices were absolutely perfection. Well, as a, as a listener, if you didn't go to the convention tour, you'd have no idea that they were going to play Coming Home. or I mean, with the YouTube generation, obviously now you know far in advance. But back then, all those songs were brand new. Yeah, and, but they, they, knew, well, they knew what resonated with the audience. And yeah. they also knew what resonated with themselves in that environment. So, uh, and, and what a great sampler too, because I mean, you, you get like yeah. a song off of each, uh, you know, each album up until uh, Creatures minus Unmasked. You got a song off each of the studio album, uh, even and a solo song, a solo album song too. 
and so what a great mix. Who, well, that's who, where the symphony fell short because they could have done the same thing with that, but they kind of went back to familiar territory. They were afraid to, they could have taken a lot of cool chances on the totally, symphony. totally, and that's no, where no, it fails. Really, you know, they could have totally done an elder or any any of that stuff. Yeah, I, I remember when uh, they played the show and and uh, for the symphony in Australia. And, Running back to my computer to try to see the set list, and I was just seeing what they played. I was just like, "Really? That well, okay? They showed Rex City. That's up for Strider. Okay, the King of the Night Okay, that's up for Strider. Do you love me? That's up for Strider. God of Thunder. That's up for Strider. Can we play another song that's not up for Strider for this? I mean, you have. I don't know. Set list is a discussion for another show too. But I mean, you play the same songs all the time. But is there a part of the symphony where where Peter sings Beth? At the very beginning of the uh, act two, and Paul comes out and says something like, "I can't." I, I'm starts. paraphrasing. Now the fun starts. Yeah, I mean, that to me is almost like, "All right, we got Beth out of the way. Now we can actually do the real show." To me, that always sounded kind of snide. And now that we know what Paul and Peter's relationship was like, it... I, I Paul was real happy Peter was there to begin with. So. Yeah, true. I, you know, and I, I gotta say this for the the, um, the symphony show. <laughs> Biggest disappointment is just when they go, who here owns the elder? And you see them raising their hands to Tommy, and you're going like, okay, so this is where you guys should have thrown out an elder song if you were going to do one. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Great Expectations was really the only way out there that they took. And they had to go back into the studio and redub that completely because originally it sounded like crap. Um, I'd like to get the unedited uh, symphony concert. Because they did a lot of redubs on that, and I remember hearing it way back when, but I haven't been able to, to track down any audio that wasn't the official version, because there were a lot of changes that they made to that, too. Yeah, I, I, I remember comparing it for one of the books, and I, now I've got to go back and listen to it. I've only got it as an MP3. Um, I'm going to go have to listen to that. I know for a fact, I remember that the beginning of Detroit Rock City, when Paul does this, woo it was the original version was a lot lower. I remember because I heard that version first. Then when I heard the official version, they had pitched up the woo to make it sound way, way higher than it actually was. Yeah, and they moved a lot around a lot of the dialogue as well. So that's what I remember off the top of my head. Uh, but I got to listen to Great Expectations. They, they, did to it. Go ahead. they did a little bit of "Here Comes the Sun" before Shandy too. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's a yeah. big deal. <laughs> So, is that it? Is that it? We got any other bandwagon jumps? I think we've kind of gone. There's probably quite a lot more, I mean, if we were to go visually, but, well, you know, we, we would be here a week and a day. One one obvious one that we, that we missed was, was the 80s and Crazy Crazy Nights wanting to be like Bon Jovi and wanting to be like Def Leppard at the time. And the sound on Crazy Nights really resonates with what was popular with those bands at the time, and they were... Definitely, definitely chasing But the, the, the 80s are a staircase of bandwagons. I mean, 85, Asylum, who are they trying to be? Rat, you know, Invasion of Your Privacy or Twisted Sister. You know, 84, who are they trying to be? You know, 83, you know, trying to be Judas Priest or, you Van know. Van Halen with a, with a hot shot guitarist like Mark St. John from just bringing in a shredder for the Eddie Van Halen type. So type I, I, I guess we could come up with anything and anything for, you know, those albums visually. But musically, I, I would say that they're still pretty honest albums 
It's just the visuals that are, are really trying to, and that's just a band that's lost because obviously they'd spent 10 years in makeup and costumes. So they didn't and, know what they were. Right. And they didn't know what they were. And that's before revenge came out and they finally figured out what they're supposed to be doing and what they're supposed to be looking like. Thank you, Julie. That's an excellent one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe for those who listen to this on the message board and stuff, you know, share with us what you think was the bandwagon jump. Yeah, I mean, what what is what do you think is the best bandwagon that they jumped on most successfully? You know, what's the biggest one that they missed? Or what's the one they well, did worst? Kiss meets the Phantom. They're trying to do a Hard Day's Night. I mean, I don't know if that yeah. could be exactly the same thing, but they're like, the Beatles had a movie. We got to have a movie. Well, and it's a coin wanting to, wanting to broaden them into television, too, at the same time, a coin seeing his vision of them, you know, with, with comic books and then into movies and just making them more than just a band. Yeah, to. let's take Star Wars and A Hard Day's Night and throw it in a blender. And we were like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny all the, the Scooby-Doo parallels over all the years because Kiss Me's a Phantom is nothing but a Scooby-Doo episode. Then you got oh, yeah. the, the disc demon from the Scooby-Doo show. Then you got that Kiss episode they did in like 2002, the Halloween show. And now, you know, 2000... It's all going to come full circle in about a month. They're teaming up with Scooby-Doo again, you know? At least, I'd like to see them with the Flintstones or the Jetsons or something. We've seen enough Scooby-Doo. They did the, the WWE versus the Flintstones. I would have liked to see Kiss on uh, the Flintstones. I think that would be... they come up with real creative names for them, too. You know Barbera. They can't You can't get away from them. After you've done The Family Guy and, I mean, Fairly Odd Parents... I mean, what else is yeah. there still for them to really ruin? Speaking of the Family Guy, this is kind of a, a, an off-topic, but they were pushing that, they were promoting that Family Guy kiss stuff. I've never seen that anywhere except online. I've, I've never, never seen, seen that available in Hot Topic, Spencer's, oh, or I anything. Did. When I was in L.A. a couple weeks ago, we were walking through Venice Beach, and I saw a Family Guy kiss t-shirt, actually. Really? Uh, for sale. I had a, had a little shop in Venice Beach. I was... Quite were they gonna be My wife told me I should buy it, and I said, no, it's just embarrassing. I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> as far as I remember, I thought they were going to do action figures, too, of, like, Peter and the jean makeup and, and all that stuff. But I, I never – that seemed to me like a logical thing to do. But who knows? Yeah. They had the ornaments last year, actually. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Anything else, guys, before we wrap up? <laughs> I don't have any more beer here. <laughs> Julian's out of beer, and, and I'm a little thirsty myself, so we're going <laughs> to call it a night here. Um, thank you, everyone, who is still listening, for listening, and we look forward to hearing your comments. I want to hear comments on the YouTube page or on the board itself. So, for Julian, for Alex, for Nigel, I am Lonnie, STL Kiss on the board. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You stay classy, this army. <laughs> <laughs>